Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. And the four living creatures, day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. Revelation, chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, New American Standard Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 through 20, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to complete our look at 15 key scriptures in the Bible as it proceeds from Genesis to Revelation. We're using these key scriptures to illustrate the fact that the Bible is a single, continuous story about the creation, fall, and redemption. Thus far, we've gone over 13 of the 15 verses that we want to focus on. So, today, as we end our series, we're going to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., would you like to make any opening comments before we begin our look at the scriptures you've chosen to illustrate how scripture concludes? Yes, I would. Today we're going to wrap up this series, and this series will have a total of seven episodes. And in this series, we've kind of taken a 50,000-foot view of the grand saga, the grand story that the Bible tells us. Now, as you just noted, this saga is all about creation, fall, and redemption. So as we come to the end of what is admittedly a very quick study that goes through the entire Bible, I think it's fitting to note that the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible, not only relates the final events of redemptive history, but actually goes beyond them. The book of Revelation actually not only concludes the story, but it gives the reader a glimpse of what our life will be like after the plan of redemption has been completed. So the book of Revelation doesn't just reveal the end of history, the end of the history of this earth, and the end of the history of these heavens, but it also shows us the new heavens and the new earth that will immediately follow this creation. 
So the book of Revelation shows us how this creation ends, but it also shows us how the new creation begins. So it shows us that the old heaven and earth, if you will, even though they pass away, the book of Revelation shows us that just as soon as those old heavens and earth pass away, there is immediately a new heavens and a new earth. That's an amazing thought. We are such creatures of the here and now that it can be hard to take a step back and realize that a time is coming when the heaven and earth we see all around us will now be replaced. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says very straightforwardly, quote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, unquote. And this declaration, while astounding, isn't really news. More than 800 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 65, verse 17, had recorded God as saying, quote, For behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, unquote. So as hard as it is for us to conceive, we live in a physical creation that has a limited life expectancy. But we do not have a limited life expectancy. God has promised that anyone who has placed their trust in Jesus will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. The visible universe that we see all around us, that we see on this earth and gazing up into the sky and even out through the deepest regions of space, through our telescopes, the visible universe that we see all around us can seem so permanent It can seem as if this universe, in fact, is that which is eternal. But actually, at this point in history, the visible universe that's all about us is not permanent. Now, our lives, which can seem, as the Bible calls them, almost just a hint of vapor, can seem so very transient as opposed to the universe, which seems so eternal. But in fact, is the exact opposite. The visible universe that we see all about us today is going to pass away, but we, the people especially who know Jesus, are going to be eternal. We are going to live eternally, as you've just said, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's not just the believers in Jesus who are going to live in eternity. It's also going to be everyone else who's going to live in eternity. But for those of us who believe in Jesus, it will be an eternity of bliss and joy. And that's why I think it's so important for everyone to think very soberly about their own eternal destiny. Because the book of Revelation not only mentions the potential for an eternity in bliss, an eternity filled with constant and unending joy, also mentions a destiny that is bound up, again, as the book puts it, the lake of fire. The choice of where we wind up is up to us. Now, the fact that there are two differing potential destinies for every person who is alive today or whoever has lived or will live is one of the reasons that it's so important for us to properly understand the very first scripture that we heard today. That was Revelation 4.8, because Revelation 4.8 is one of two places in the Bible where God is described as being holy, holy, holy. And the other place is Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3, where the six-winged seraphim are described as saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Exactly. As R.C. Sproul pointed out in his classic book, The Holiness of God, 
There is only one attribute of God that is ever emphasized by a triple repetition, and that attribute is God's holiness. The Bible describes God as possessing many different attributes. God is loving. God is just. God is unchanging. God is immutable. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. The Bible makes a lot of declarations about God and His attributes, but there is only one attribute of God that is distinguished in the Bible by using a triple repetition in the declaration of that attribute, and that attribute is God's holiness. We tend to think of the word holiness as meaning sacred or pure or ethereal, and as the word is applied to God or His people, it does have some of those dimensions. But you also remind people that the primary meaning of the word holy as it applies to God or his people is other. Yes. The word holy as it applies to God reminds us that God is completely separate from his creation and his creatures. Separate in the sense that he is of an entirely different character and nature. Not separate in the sense that God is absent from or not present in, but separate in the sense that God, in his essential nature and attributes, is of an entirely different character from any created being, including man. God alone is self-existent. He is the only one who possesses the power to exist without any dependence on any other source, system, or entity. God is independent, non-contingent, and non-derived. Now, by contrast, everything within the created order, including man, is dependent on God for its existence. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, quote, In God we live and move and have our being. Right. So, God exists above and is transcendent over his creation. So, when God uses the word holy with respect to his people, or even with respect to some object, such as a particular altar or utensil or tool, when God uses that word holy with respect to something, the primary meaning of that word holy was that that object or God's people were to be set apart and devoted entirely to God's purposes. Well, you see, in a certain sense, the entire Bible is devoted to the story of God reclaiming his people. In Eden, Adam and Eve had been created blameless. They were very good. They were pure. And so initially, Adam and Eve were entirely holy because they were set aside for the purposes of God. So for a while, Adam and Eve were completely holy because they devoted themselves completely to God's commandment to tend the garden, take care of the animals, and to refrain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they didn't stay that way. There came a time when Adam and Eve rendered themselves unholy because they succumbed to Satan's temptation. In other words, they no longer were exclusively devoted to God's purposes. They began to pursue goals and ends that were outside of God's goals and ends, just as Satan had done at one point before he got kicked out of heaven. Exactly. You know, sometimes people will ask, well, why couldn't God just sort of reboot creation after Adam and Eve sinned? You know, why couldn't God just sort of wipe the slate clean by ignoring Adam and Eve's sin? Well, the short answer to that question is that because God is holy, not just holy, but holy, 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 he can't compromise his justice even for a creature that he loves as much as he does man. God could not allow what constituted cosmic rebellion to go unpunished without compromising his perfect justice. 
So immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, after they rebelled the first time in the Garden of Eden, God launched his plan of reclamation, of redemption, of salvation. And the Bible is essentially the record of how God conducted that plan throughout human history. Now, as we saw in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, God, in order to bring that plan to fruition, had to personally participate in that plan of salvation. And he did that because the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature, took on human flesh, and in that human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God's only Son, became the perfect sacrifice to make redemption for his people. You know, there's an old adage that said that every good story had a beginning, a middle, and an end. So in our first 13 scriptures, we saw the beginning and much of the middle of the story. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we get to the end. And just as every great story has a great end, in Revelation, we see one whale of an ending. I mean, just the visual imagery alone throughout the entire book is compelling. In our opening scripture, we see lightning come out of a heavenly throne. Then there are lamps of fire burning in front of the throne. And since these lamps of fire are the seven spirits of God, you know they are brilliant and radiant. There's thunder rolling around the whole scene, and all that light and fire is being reflected off an enormous crystal sea. And this scene is just in chapter 4 of a book with 22 chapters. Talk about setting the stage for a climax. Yes. You know, the imagery in the book of Revelation makes that book alone worth the reading. But actually, that fantastic nature of the imagery that's contained in the book of Revelation has been the source of blessing, but also a challenge for the church. You know, many of the images in Revelation of enormously large objects falling to earth from heaven, riders on horses of differing colors, angels holding back the winds or flying through heavens, a woman of purple and scarlet sitting on a multi-headed scarlet beast. Some of these images visually are so amazing, so different from what our everyday experience is, that they have given rise to a wide variety of possible interpretations. Matter of fact, I think it's safe to say that no book of the Bible is subject to more differing interpretations than the book of Revelation. So we certainly don't have time to get into all those possible interpretations of the various scenes within Revelation. But fortunately, I think there are some things that all interpreters agree on, and I think those things tell us exactly what we need to know as we see the biblical story ending. Such as? Well, such is the fact that all interpreters agree that the various scenes and images of beasts and believers and angels and wars in the book of Revelation, all those images are descriptive of conflict. And they're descriptive of the conflicts that have marked the history of the world since the arrival of the Roman Empire. There isn't universal agreement by any means on which geographic regions of the earth are involved in the conflicts, or necessarily even who the opposing sides are in the conflicts. And there certainly is not agreement on the timing of the conflicts. But all interpreters see that Revelation describes a world in conflict And these conflicts always involve God's people and God's church in some way. And I think if you look at the history of the world since Jesus' life, you can see that that's been true. And it would still be true even if an interpreter views much of the conflict in Revelation as taking place in a time that is future to us. You know, that's a particularly poignant observation. One of the biggest aspirations of the Roman Empire was to create a Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. 
and they were partially successful in creating a reasonably stable empire for a certain period of time. But ultimately, both their peace and their empire fell apart. Exactly right. But there's another thing that all interpreters agree upon, and that is that no matter how many battles are fought, which earthly groups are involved, or when or where the wars occur, God and his forces win the final battle. God will be victorious in the end, and God's victory will include his people also becoming victorious. Wow, that's such a comforting thought. Again, sometimes we can be so caught up in our own struggles or in seeing the various divisions that exist around us, it's easy to be frustrated or discouraged. But God has promised us that not only will He win the ultimate victory, but that He will include His people in the fruits of that victory. Yes, exactly. Well, another thing that all interpreters agree on is that a time and a place that is relatively close to that final victory of God, Jesus will make a physical return to earth. You know, right now, Jesus' physical body is seated at the right hand of the Father's throne. Now, that's the position of honor. The right hand of the King is the position of honor. But Jesus, his physical body, is not going to stay at that right hand of the throne for all eternity. Jesus is coming back to earth. He's coming back to the very same earth that he created several thousand years ago. You know, as somebody once put it, Jesus came to the earth his first time as a suffering servant. But Jesus is coming back as a ruling conqueror. He came once as a lamb to be slain, but he's coming back as a lion to rule. He's coming back as a ruling conqueror. He is no longer the suffering servant. Jesus is now going to be the conquering lion. Again, wow. And when he does return, there's another thing that just about every interpreter agrees on. He's bringing judgment with him. And that's another one of those good news, bad news parts of Scripture. For the people who place their trust in Jesus, Jesus will come back to apportion rewards to his people. You know, it's been said that in heaven, all cups are full, but not all cups are the same size. Well, the good news is that for Jesus' people, his return will mean that they receive rewards for their holy deeds, deeds that they have done for him and for his kingdom, the deeds that they have set aside for him. Now, I strongly believe that some of the believers who have served very faithfully in humble places are going to receive crowns, they're going to receive rewards that will outshine a great many others who are far better known when they were on this earth. Now, that's the good news. Jesus' followers are going to get their rewards. The bad news is that for those people whose names are not written in the book of life, they're not going to receive an eternity of reward, but instead they're going to receive an eternity of judgment. But let's be clear. Anyone who is hearing Anchored by Truth does not have to fear that judgment. If they're hearing this show, they can still elect to let Jesus be, as you titled it in one of your books, The Prodigal's Advocate. I love that book because it so clearly lays out the choice that we all have. We can face the judgment of God on our own, or we can accept Jesus to be our advocate, our representative. If we choose Jesus as our representative, we no longer have to fear the lake of fire or anything like it. We will be seated at the banquet table with Jesus, and then we will be able to eat from the tree of life. Are there any other things that pretty much all interpreters of Revelation agree upon? Well, there's at least one. I would go back to the observation that you made at the start of the show. 
just about every interpreter agrees that our current heavens and our current earth are going away. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And then Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But, and this is a really important but, the elimination of the current heavens and the current earth isn't the end of the story. The current heavens and the current earth will be replaced. They will be replaced immediately by a new heavens and a new earth. But there will be a very important difference between the old and the new. The new heavens and the new earth will be totally without sin. And that's a critical distinction. In a way, it may be the most important note about the ending of the big story, the grand saga of creation, fall, and redemption. In effect, this story, our story, will have served its purpose through a several thousand year journey. God will have demonstrated that He is holy, just, and merciful. It's been said that if God just kicked Satan out of heaven for Satan's rebellion, there He would have demonstrated His power and even His justice, but not His mercy. To demonstrate His mercy, God created man. There is no record in the Bible of the fallen angels being redeemed, but the Bible is a very clear record of fallen man being redeemed. Exactly. And like any great writer, God closes his story, but he leaves the reader not only wanting more, but he also leaves the reader knowing that more is available. In our second opening scripture today, we heard two invitations. We hear Jesus and the Holy Spirit issue an invitation to the readers of the book of Revelation to join the Holy God in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth, and in the new Jerusalem. And John confirms that it is Jesus who has issued that invitation to the readers of Revelation to come and be part of the next story. But John doesn't just stop there. John acts as a representative for all of mankind, and John responds to Jesus' invitation to come by also issuing his own invitation. John invites Jesus to come and complete the entire plan of redemption by doing all that Jesus has promised. You know, John, and I think just about every believer who has ever lived, longs for the day when all of the promises, including the promise of the second coming, will be fulfilled. So John says to Jesus to not only come, but to come quickly. What a fitting end to the story. Naturally, on day one of creation, God was present, but man was not. But God quickly began shaping his creation so it would be a suitable place for man to live, grow, and have fellowship with God. And on day six, God created man to occupy the earth that had been prepared for him. Now at the end of the story, this creation has fulfilled its purpose. Sadly, we saw man fall very shortly after he was created. But then, between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21, that creation watches as God unfolds his plan of redemption. And that plan, for this creation, was completed in chapter 20 with God pronouncing final judgment on those who had rebelled against Him and those who made themselves the enemy of His people. And the big point throughout all of this is that God achieves His purpose. Of course He does. He's God. 
but since the moment hasn't arrived in time yet, God gave us revelation as a final book of his word to assure even those of us who may not physically see the moment that victory is assured. God has always taken care to assure his people that he will achieve his ends, including providing a new and better home for them that will last for all eternity. Well, all I can say is amen, or amen if you prefer. You know, in Ephesians 1.8, the Bible tells us that God chose his people even before he laid the foundation of this earth. And now, in the final lines of the closing book of the Bible, God, who has superintended all of history to ensure that he has collected every single one of those people that he chose before the foundation of the earth, God invites the people that he has chosen and whose redemption he has provided for to join him in the new heavens and the new earth. When God first created the heavens and the earth on day one, as you've noted, of course, man wasn't present on the very first day. God had to take some time to shape that heaven, that earth, for the arrival of man. So God shaped the early earth for people. But you know, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to the earth, the new Jerusalem is already fully conformed to his people. Because God's people are already around. God's people are already in existence. God's people are already waiting They're anxious for the arrival of their final home, of their brand new perfect home. So God doesn't need to take any time shaping that new Jerusalem. He just brings it to earth, already fully conformed to be a perfect abode for those people. You know, God is the sovereign over all creation. He always has been. He always will be. God is sovereign over everything, not just over the affairs of this earth. He's sovereign over the sun and the moon. He's sovereign over the Milky Way galaxy. He's sovereign over the 50 billion galaxies with their 100 billion stars each. God is sovereign over all of those things. But as big and as majestic as God is, as much of the cosmos and the universe as there is for God to oversee and to superintend and to sustain and to operate, As majestic as God is, as big as God is, as powerful as God is, there has never been a single second throughout the entirety of recorded history when God has ever not remembered every single one of his people that he chose before he laid the earth's foundation. So as the Bible closes with those final verses in the book of Revelation, We need to remember that the Bible is a story about a single person, Jesus. It's about a single plan, the plan of redemption of the people that God chose before the foundation of the earth. So we always need to remember that the Bible is a book about Jesus, but Jesus is a representative of mankind. And so the Bible isn't just about Jesus, it's also about us. And so unless we spend some time going through, studying, contemplating, and meditating on the Bible, we are never going to have that beautiful and wonderful relationship that God has intended for us to have with Him. And in fact, that relationship that His believers, that His people are going to have with Him throughout all of eternity. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Because we are approaching the time that we celebrate all the blessings we enjoy, because millions of men and women have been willing to serve in our armed forces, today let's listen to a prayer to celebrate Veterans Day. A prayer for Veterans Day. 
Sovereign Father, you are a fortress of refuge and a shield of defense to your people. You are the source of certainty in uncertain times. Your faithfulness is everlasting and your pledge to protect your people is true. Lord, today we remember those who stood as shields in defense of this nation, a very great many of whom did so at the cost of their lives. We remember that the Bible tells us that there is no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Certainly that kind of love has been exhibited throughout many generations of soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen. We pray for our soldiers who have suffered wounds, especially those in need of healing now. We ask that you would help them to get the care they need and that they would be surrounded by friends and family as they recover. We cannot think of love, courage, and sacrifice without remembering Christ Jesus. Christ proclaimed that the greatest faith he saw while here was that of a soldier. It was a soldier who, in turn, proclaimed Christ to be the Son of God while yet on the cross. We share the centurion's faith in Jesus and pray and give glory in his name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.